Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will examine how NBA teams can use game theory to stay competitive in the new world of fast-paced play and three-point shots. So if you've ever wondered what skills NBA GMs should value the most, or who game theory suggests will be the best player in five years, this is the podcast for you. So sit back. Relax and enjoy the Sport Professor Podcast. So the idea of this podcast was born out of couple of different things. The first being my love of the NBA and following not only my favorite team, the Boston Celtics, but also following the league as a whole. And while following and watching games early this year, one of the things that I noticed and that others have noticed and talked about at great lengths as well is this scoring explosion that we're seeing in the league. Games are getting to higher and higher point totals. We see games in the 130s. We saw a team score 92 points in the first half. And people have talked about why this scoring explosion has come about, noting that teams are playing at a faster pace, that they're shooting more threes, that they're having increased number of possessions a game. And while all this is interesting, what I haven't heard anyone really talk about yet is the idea of how should teams react to this? How should teams use what information they have in this environment to give their teams the best opportunity to win. And so since I hadn't heard anyone talk about this, I wanted to dive a little bit further into the numbers. And as I started looking at the numbers for myself, what I started to observe were some very interesting trends that were happening that weren't being discussed and that fit within this notion of game theory, which I've read and taught a lot over the past few years. And so I thought, what a great idea to combine what's happening in the NBA with this idea of game theory. Some basic numbers to kind of set the scene for what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the scoring explosion in the NBA. So scores for games in the NBA have increased drastically over the last five seasons. And that's, I just went back five years to the 2014-2015 season. During that year, the average number of points per games that a team scored was 99.88 points. Now, if you compare that to the present day number in the 2018-2019 season, the number of points scored by a team per game is 110.64. So we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of points, a 10% increase over a five-year span. And when you actually go and look at each of the individual seasons in between those years, we notice that this is a trend that is continuously progressing upward. Now, what most of the commentators will tell you is that that's due to this increase in number of threes that teams are taking a game and due to an increase in how fast the teams are playing, which is true. We see that the number of threes over that time period has gone up approximately 10 per game. We have also see that the number of possessions that a team has has gone up seven possessions per game. So if teams are taking more threes and having more possessions, it makes sense that they are scoring more. But what does this mean for the individual owners or the GMs or the coaches? How can they use this information to their benefit? Well, before we go any deeper into the NBA and their numbers, to answer these questions, we first need to have an understanding of the basic elements of something that's called game theory. 
Game theory on its surface is pretty easy and straightforward. In 2003, an individual named Miller wrote a book called Game Theory at Work. And in this book, he said that your life consists of games, situations in which you compete for the high score. And that game theory is just a systematic approach that we use to break down those games that are in our lives and examine them in hopes of finding a better understanding of how we can go about winning. Miller goes on to define game theory as, quote, the way of analyzing any setting where the things that you care about, i.e. the outcomes, depend not just on your own actions, but the actions of someone else. So game theory deals with this idea of looking at situations in which individuals have to make decisions. And in making their decisions, they have to take into account how other people who are seeking a similar outcome are going to act. These situations that we're talking about are characterized by three things. The first of which is that the situation has to involve a set of people, and we call these people players. Now, a set of people could mean a lot of different things. It could be two teams competing against each other. It could be two individuals competing against each other. It could be two companies competing against each other. It could be a consumer competing against a company. We just have to have, at minimum, two players in this game. The second characteristic is that we have a set of allowable moves that each player can make, and we call these moves strategies. The third characteristic is that we have to have a possible outcome that can be mathematically described by some type of payoff or utility function. So we have to have players, we have to have rules, and we have to have an outcome that they're trying to accomplish that we can express or talk about in a mathematical way. As long as you have these three characteristics, you have a game. So in this manner, games can apply to really any type of situation. And in fact, scholars have studied and applied the ideas of game theory to many fields, including economics, law, political science, military strategy, philosophy, evolutionary biology, college admissions, and insurance. So game theory has exploded out into all these things. Now, from a scholarly standpoint, it was first written about in 1913 by an individual named Ernest Zermelo. So starting with this work, a number of scholars have continuously added to the theory. And in doing so, they've come to a, a couple of realizations about how strategic settings are approached and how individuals may use this knowledge of the setting to come out on top. So one of these key findings has been that people or the players in the game will always choose a move or a strategy that will maximize the payoff that they get. As Miller stated in his book, quote, In game theory land, people always act in their own self-interest, and consequently, everyone lies whenever lying serves their interest. In other words, in the words of game theory, there exists no mercy or compassion only self-interest. And Miller points this out because understanding this and understanding how game theory applies to situations will then help us understand how we can better make decisions and change the game, trying to turn situations in which we might not be able to win at all into situations that we can win or that we can at least get something out of. So while scholars have taken this and applied this out to different fields, one field where we haven't seen a ton of research done 
on the application of game theory is in the world of sports. And there really is no reason for the lack of research there because there's a ton of examples where game theory could be applied and could actually help the player in the game better understand the situation and come out on top. So for example, think about two sport organizations like the New York Yankees and the New York Mets competing in the same market in the same city of New York for the same resources. Now we can think of resources in a ton of different ways, but think of the resource of fans and players, right? The Mets and the Yankees are competing against each other to try to attract the most possible fans to their games. So they're in direct competition with each other they're also competing for players. So they're not just trying to maximize how many fans they can get to games, they're trying to maximize the talent of the players they're able to draft or the players they're able to sign. So they're in direct competition with each other. Now, this idea of applying game theory to that setting where the Yankees and the Mets are competing for those resources, this idea is not one that is foreign. And in fact, the Oakland Athletics and Major League Baseball did this very famously during the Moneyball era. And if you've ever read the book Moneyball or seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Because what they did is they employed a process that's called backwards induction. This is a principal component of game theory that says we look to the end of a game or end of a situation for what the outcome is that we want, and then we work backwards. And the Oakland Athletics did this in trying to sign players. They started to apply the ideas of game theory to building a team. So my most teams start building a team by trying to identify the best players in the league or the best players who are free agents, and then moving forward, offering them contracts or trying to get them to sign with them. The Oakland A's did the opposite. They said, what is the end thing that we're looking for? Our end goal is to win the most games possible. Therefore, I shouldn't be going out and trying to buy players. I should be going out and trying to buy wins. From there, they went back and said, well, what do we need to win games? We need runs. So it's not just about buying wins. It's about buying runs. So they're moved backwards. Well, the question became, how do we score runs? So moving backwards again, to score a run, we first have to be on base. And in moving backwards, this step by step, they came up with the idea they shouldn't just be buying the best players. They should be buying players or paying players who can get on base. And by applying this method, they were able to go out and sign players that other GMs didn't want. So what we can see then is by working backwards... By using this idea of game theory, the Oakland Athletics were able to actually be successful and spend a lot less money than everyone else. So while the A's provide a really good example here of how to apply game theory into your sport and then use it to your benefit to get a competitive edge, we actually see even more basic examples of game theory every day in sport. The most basic example of that is two teams just competing on the same playing field for victory. So this is what's called a zero-sum finite game, or in other words, a game in which there's only one winner, and that winner is determined after a fixed amount of moves or a fixed amount of time. So think about the game of chess. Chess is probably the prototypical example of this, as we have two players, they're competing against each other to topple each other's king, and in order to accomplish that goal, they make a series of moves one after the other in order to reach a definitive end to the match. So 
by studying the game of chess and by studying all the possible moves and reactions that you can make and that your opponent can make, not only will it help you decide what's the best move, but you can also track moves ahead of time. So we can forecast what the end of the game might look like, and then we can work backwards from there to try to assure that I'm the one that actually reaches victory. In their 2008 book entitled The Art of Strategy, these two authors named Dexit and Nailbuff talk about this idea of looking to the end of the game and working backwards. And they say that if you're playing a game, column element in these situations is that you do not act in a vacuum. Instead, you are surrounded by active decision makers whose choices interact with yours. This interaction has an important effect on how you should be thinking and how you should act. And so within this notion of game theory, we use backward inductions. We go to where the end of the game is and we work backwards. But in doing that, we also need to consider what the opponent, what the other person I'm playing against is going to be doing in the situation as well. So now that we have this very basic background and introduction into game theory, let's examine what's going on the NBA this season. And let's deal with how teams might be able to apply game theory to get an advantage moving forward. So before we dive in, let's set the parameters for the game that we're gonna be playing. As we noted in the introduction, the NBA has seen an approximate 10% increase in scoring over the last five years. Teams have gone from scoring 99 points a game in the 2014-2015 season all the way up to 110 points a game this year. Many writers and commentators have equated this to a couple of things. The first being the increased pace of play, leading to more possessions a game. They've also talked about the new rules, especially the rule where the shot clock is reset to only 14 seconds after an offensive rebound compared to 24 seconds in the previous seasons. And then they've also finally pointed to the three-point revolution, this idea that we are shooting more threes than ever. If we go and we deep dive into the numbers, we find that the commentators are probably onto something because we see that the scoring has increased steadily as the number of possessions has also gone up. And we track this over five years, we see that each of the last five years, the number of possessions a team has per game has increased and the scoring has increased as well. And we've risen from about 97 possessions a game in the 2014-2015 season all the way up to 104 possessions a game this year, which is about a 9% increase. They're also onto something when they're talking about the number of threes that are being taken leading to this explosion. But as the number of threes attempted a game has risen by nine over that same five-year span. We've gone from teams shooting 22 threes a game all the way up to teams shooting 31 threes a game this year. Then the interesting thing is over that same time where we see that increase in the number of threes attempted, the actual shooting percentage on those shots has remained pretty constant. We've hovered right around 34, 35% during that whole span. So it's not that teams are shooting the three better, it's just that they're shooting more of them. During that same time period, the percentage of points which each team scores from two, meaning the percentage of total points a team scores in a game that come from shots that are twos, that number has dropped by 6%. This tells us that teams are playing faster, they're generating more possessions per game, and they're shooting more from three with those extra possessions. And they're doing this at the sacrifice of the number of two-pointers that they're shooting. 
So while these general trends are arguably leading to a more exciting and upbeat product on the court, the question I've really been struck by and that I want to try to answer is, is playing fast and shooting a lot of threes really the best strategy for a team to help them win a game? To attempt to answer this question, let's look at what game theory says about this three-point phenomenon. So remember, in applying game theory, we first have to define who the players are and we have to set the parameters or the rules for the game that we're playing. So for our scenario, let's keep it pretty simple and let's break it down into just a single offensive play in a game. So the players in this game are the two NBA teams on the floor. We can call them Team A and Team B. In our game, we'll see that Team A is the offensive team and Team B is the defensive team. The potential outcome for Team A in this position is they can score no points, they can score two points, or they can score three points. So for our scenario, let's just ignore free throws to keep it simple. Conversely, on the other side, Team B is the defensive team. The potential outcomes for them is they can give up three points, they can give up two points, or they can give up zero points. The goal, what both of these teams are trying to get out of this game is the same. They're trying to maximize the number of points that they may obtain in a possession. So for team A, they're trying to get as many points as possible. And for team B, they're trying to give up as few points as possible. So the best outcome for team A would be to score three points. The best outcome from team B would be to give up zero points. Now, how do they go about actually accomplishing these goals? Well, they can insert a variety of different tactics. For example, team B, they might play a zone defense, or they might make a decision to go over top on screens or double screens. They may match up players in different ways with different opposing players to try to hide maybe a bad defender that they had, or maybe try to maximize the ability of one of their best defensive players. On the other end of the floor, team A, the offensive team, they might run a specific play like a pick and roll or ISO to try to free up players to have a better chance at making a shot. But regardless of whatever the strategy is that's employed by both teams, at any point in a possession, an offensive player has the ball in their hands. And at that point in time, they have three options. They can either shoot the ball, they can pass the ball, or they can dribble the ball to another spot on the floor and then decide to shoot or pass. So they can do one of these three things. So these are the moves that they can make in the game. Now, the decision to shoot is based off a number of factors, like how open you are, how good you are, what's the score in the game. But I want to keep this very simple and say that a player should shoot the ball when their probability of scoring from that spot on the court is greater than the probability of someone else scoring from another spot on the court. So simply, if the person with the ball's probability of making the shot is greater than the probability of their teammate making the shot, they should shoot. If their probability of making the shot is worse than someone else's, they should pass the ball or they should dribble another spot on the floor and reassess those percentages. So with those basic tenets of the game set, Let's actually break down the decision-making for the player with the ball. And to do that, I want to offer two facts and then one assumption that we need to make about shooting percentages. So the first fact, if we are at distance zero, meaning that we are right under the basketball hoop, your probability of hitting the shot will be the highest. So think about what I'm saying here. If you are a professional basketball player standing right under the basketball hoop, what do you think the probability of making that shot would be. 
most people would argue that it's 100%, but we can't have it be 100 because we have defensive pressure too. Remember, there's another team on the floor. They're trying to stop you from scoring. So it's almost 100%. And in real life, there's a great website called Cleaning the Glass, which breaks down a plethora of information. And one of the things they break down is what they call shooting percentage at the rim. The shooting percentage at the rim looks at if you are standing right at the basket and you shoot, what percentage of that of those shots will go in, taking into account all that's around you, that defensive pressure, the shot blockers, the rim protectors, etc. And what they found that this year, people are making that shot at the rim in the NBA at 62.3%. So it's not 100%, but this is the highest probability of making a shot. So that's the first fact. When you're at distance zero, your probability of hitting the shot is the highest, and that number is exactly 62.3%, meaning 62.3% of the time you will make that shot. Fact number two, as a player gets further away from the basket, their probability drops. This happens for a number of reasons. First off, as we get further away, the shot becomes harder. There becomes more skill involved with taking the shot. And just like cleaning the glass does for shots at the rim, they break down shots on the floor in percentages and they, they talk about five different areas of the court. The first one is at the rim, which we just talked about, is right under the hoop. We have short mid-range, long mid-range, corner three, and non-corner three. So as we talk about them, that is shortest to longest distance. And what I'm telling you is that fact is, as we get further away, probability should drop. And that's exactly what we see with these numbers. The short mid-range uh, shot is made 38% of the time. We see a little bit of an uptick for the long mid-range. We'll talk about that here in a second more. And then long mid-range shot is made 40% of the time. The corner three is made 38% of the time. And the non-corner three is made 35% of the time. This leads us to our final piece of the game that we need to understand. We have our two facts. The closer you are to the basket, the easier it is. The further you are away, the harder it is. The assumption that we're going to make in this game is that each player on the court and the coach knows these probabilities. So this is important because if a player or coach didn't know these, they might act in a way that's not logical, meaning they might shoot a long two because they think it's the best. And that's not a logical thought because we know that it is not true. So if they act in a non-logical way, this makes predicting what they will or should do very hard. So remember that game theory operates under the notion that players understand and know the elements of the game being played. So I've just laid those out to you so that way you know them and we're saying that in this game, the players and coach know them as well. So with all that being said, from a very basic standpoint, for the offensive team to win the game, they should shoot from the spot that they have the greatest chance of making the shot. That is, they should shoot as close to the rim as possible since they have the greatest chance of making the shot and scoring ports from up close. Consider if they shoot a non-corner three, they have the greatest likelihood of scoring zero points. Versus if they shoot a shot at the rim, they have the greatest likelihood of scoring some points. And in this scenario, not all outcomes are equal. It is better to get two than it is to get nothing. So you want to try to assure that you're at least getting some points. And so what we're saying is that based off of these facts and this assumption, the team should knowingly try to shoot from as close to the rim as possible. This would mean that defensively, 
the team would want to do their best to keep their players from shooting close to the rim and try to make them shoot from further away. That's the breakdown of that single play. And what teams and coaches would do in this single game is they would look for ways then to maximize this knowledge and take advantage of it for their benefit. Now, if we change the parameters of the game just a little bit, and we take it from just that single possession with those single outcomes to an entire basketball game, now we can start to apply this in a little bit more of a big picture way. Now, However, when doing this, we need to take into consideration that a shot from up close at the rim is not worth the same as a shot that's further away. A shot at the rim is only worth two points versus three is obviously worth three points. So we have to then ask ourselves in the course of an entire game how this piece of information changes what the strategy might be. And we have to figure out how I can use this information of the value of a shot and the percentage together to come up with a strategy to win. Well, we can do that in a very simple way. We can change the percentages into a value. So what we do is we look at how many points on average a person would get by shooting that shot. If we start with a shot at the rim, in the NBA, a shot at the rim goes in 62% of the time. Meaning, if someone were to shoot a shot at the rim, which is worth two points, if they were to shoot that shot 100 times, they would make 62 of those. Well, 62 shots from that range would account to 124 points. So that means every shot that was taken was worth 1.24 points. So the average number of points that scored in a shot at the rim in the NBA is 1.24 points. And we can calculate this for every single shot. So a shot at the rim on average is worth 1.24 points. A shot from short mid-range is worth on average 0.77 points. A shot long mid-range is worth on average 0.81 points. A corner three shot on average is worth 1.14 points. And a non-corner three shot is worth on average 1.05 points. So now we can take into consideration this idea that not all shots are created equal. And by doing this, over the course of an entire game, I can actually see what is the actual best shot to take. And the best shot to take is the one that's going to give me the highest number of points for every time I take it. And that is the shot at the rim. So even when we expand the one possession game into a full game, we still get the same result. And that is that the offensive team should look to take the majority of their shots at the rim because every shot they take there is worth 1.24 points versus the next closest is the corner three, which is worth 1.14, the non-corner three, which is worth 1.05, the mid-range, which is worth 0.81, and the short mid-range, which is worth 0.77. So let's circle this all back to the game that we've described. Taking into account this new knowledge about the league average for points per shot attempt in a specific location, we can now come up with a strategy to maximize the potential outcomes for both of my teams. So the offensive team, Team A, they're going to try to continue to pass or dribble the ball until someone can get a shot at the rim. If they do this over the course of an entire game, they take every shot at the rim. Remember, they have 104.9 possessions per game, and they will get 1.246 
points for every shot they take at the rim. If they take all their shots at the rim, they will score 130.71 points per game. Now, is this realistic? Probably not. We have to acknowledge that you can't always get a shot at the rim because the defense might be doing very well at keeping me from getting there. So what we've learned is that if they can't get a shot at the rim, the next shot they should try to get is a corner three. Let's just say a team were only to shoot corner threes for an entire year. Remember, 104.9 possessions per game. That means they're taking 104.9 shots from the corner three, which is worth 1.14 points per shot. That means that they would average, if they only shot corner threes, 120.37 points a game. Obviously, this is impossible. We can't take all our shots from corner three, but let's say that they went to the third best option and they only took non-corner threes. Remember, they get still get 1.05 points for every non-corner three that's shot. So if they did this for every possession in a game, they would score 110.74 points a game. So we've essentially solved this game. We know where a team should look to shoot from every single time. Rim first, corner three second, non-corner three third. We know where they shouldn't shoot from. They shouldn't shoot long mid-range, and they definitely shouldn't shoot short mid-range. And we also know from the defensive standpoint what not to allow them to do. And we can come up with strategies to do this. So that's how we very simply can apply these notions of game theory with a little bit of data and come up with strategies on how to be successful. The interesting thing, if you remember from the very beginning, is that I said in the NBA, teams are only averaging 110.64 points. But notice the the top three shots I just gave you at the rim, corner three, non-corner three, all had averages above what the current average is. Now, the non-corner three is very close. It's only 0.1 off or one-tenth off, which almost leads us to believe that we're just shooting all our shots from non-corner threes. But every number was bigger. So what that tells us is that while, yes, there's an offensive explosion, we are at no means close to what this could be given the number of possessions that we have. So the, the question that I started to have when I observed that we still had this point in difference was why is this the case? And so I wanted to go back to the numbers and see where teams are actually shooting from to see what teams are doing wrong. And again, Cleaning the Glass provides you all this information and I can see what percentage of the league shots are at the rim, short mid-range, long mid-range, corner three, non-corner three. 36% of a team's shots this season in the NBA have come at the rim. That is by far the number one spot. That's good. We said all of our shots or majority of our shots should come from there. Second most common shot was the non-corner three. There's 25% of all shots in a game are non-corner threes. It's our third best shot option. And so for it to be ranked second, that's okay. We can see that 61.49% of the shots are coming from a position of strength. However, the problem becomes with what's next. Because remember we said the corner three is the second best shot, and that shot's only being shot 7% of the time. It's being shot the least, and yet it has the second most possible points per attempt. So where are the rest of these shots coming from? They're coming from the short mid-range at 18%, long mid-range at 30%. This is telling us why the numbers aren't what they should be, because the third most common shot is the short mid-range, and that is the worst shot you can take on the court. 
because it, it yields the lowest number of points per shot. Remember, for every shot that I take in the short mid-range, I'm only getting, on average, 0.77 points per shot. This means that if I take a shot from the short mid-range, instead of taking a shot at the rim, I lose 0.47 points. For every shot I take in the short mid-range, instead of taking from a corner three, I'm losing 0.3 points. And so teams are relying at a very high percentage on a shot that's actually costing them points. So this information can be used in a number of different ways to help a team capitalize on the current season and to help GMs work for the future. So let's start by looking at how coaches might be able to use this information. Offensively, what coaches need to realize is that it's the most important that they are trying to create shots at the rim, not shots from three. They should look to increase, if possible, the number of shots that they're getting at the rim, hopefully not the expense of the corner three or the non-corner three, but hopefully at the expense of the short mid-range and the long mid-range. In fact, one of the most common narratives that we've seen or we've heard in the NBA from the media, the coaches, and the commentators, the long mid-range is the worst shot in basketball. That's actually not what the information and data says. The worst shot in basketball is the short mid-range shot. If teams were just to eliminate that shot, which equates to almost 18 possessions a game, and they were to redistribute that shot, into shots at the rim, corner threes or non-corner threes, they'd be able to increase their scoring by three or four points a game. That's the difference in winning or losing all those close matches. So just by eliminating that worst shot and redistributing it offensively, we are going to be able to be more successful. Now, let's turn it on its head and let's look at it from the other player standpoint, the defensive teams. If I am coaching a defense, what I want to try to take away the most is the shot at the rim and then the corner three. Well, how do I go about doing that? A lot of teams have gone to what we call rim rim protectors, big men who are good at blocking shots at the rim. What does that do? That forces players, instead of getting all the way to the rim to shoot, to shoot from that short mid-range, which is the worst shot. So by having a rim protector in there, I'm decreasing the amount of shots that are the best shots for the offense, and I'm actually increasing the amount of shots, the short mid-range, that is the worst shot for the offense. And so that is a key element, and we've seen teams do this historically and go after these big rim protectors, though in the current NBA, they're harder and harder to find. From a GM standpoint, just like the Oakland Athletics use this idea of backwards induction, of looking at what the end result was and then moving backwards as a means to determine what players they should have on their teams, NBA GMs need to think of this in the same way when they're trying to draft players or attract players via free agency. They need to look at individuals who have skill sets that's going to lead offensively to them scoring the most and defensively to holding the team at least amount of points. Well, we just described what those talents were. We want someone who's good at shooting the ball at the rim, but also look at, look for someone who's good at passing it to someone who's at the rim to shoot it or someone that's good at driving the ball to the rim to score. Those should be the key things offensively that we want, not three-point shooters because the value of the two-point shot at the rim, as we've established, is greater. So if being a three-point shooter is great 
And we need those individuals, but the individuals who we should prioritize, who we really should go after, are those individuals that can drive to the rim, pass the ball at the rim, and finish at the rim at a really high rate. Defensively, we want to have perimeter players who are going to be good at making it hard on their opponent to get all the way to the rim for a shot. We're going to want big men who are good at forcing players to shoot a short mid-range rather than allowing them to shoot that shot at the rim. We don't need to worry as much about stealing the ball because if we just have someone that forces them into a shot from a bad location, that's almost as good as a steal. A steal gets you zero points. A shot from a bad location only nets you a negative 0.1 point. So those are almost the same. So having someone that can force a bad shot on defense is just as important as having someone who can steal the ball. So this knowledge is great when we're trying to provide gems with information and make suggestions about the types of players they should look for, but it even works better if we go through and start to apply it to specific players in the league to project who we should target maybe as a GM or to think about who is the next great star in the league. So if we apply the information that we have and the characteristics that we're looking for, offensively, we're looking for a player that is good at getting to the rim and scoring that's good at passing it to the rim, and one that doesn't shoot a lot of shots from three, from corner three, from short two, or long two. We want the person that takes the most shots at the rim. From a defensive standpoint, we want someone who is going to keep people away from the basket, so a good perimeter defender that keeps them away from the rim, maybe forces them into shots from the long mid-range or the short mid-range. So if we go through and look at the players that fit these characteristics, there's two that really pop out as being different than everyone else. And they are Ben Simmons of the Philadelphia 76ers and Giannis Antetokounmpo on the Milwaukee Bucks. Let's look at Ben Simmons first. Ben Simmons might be the prototypical player for the future, according to the findings of the game that we just played. He's only been in the NBA for a little over a season, but during that time, he has yet to shoot a three. And in fact, 61% of his shots have come at the rim, and he is shooting 68% from there. Now, likewise, Giannis, who's been in the league considerably longer, six seasons, he averages 58% of his shots at the rim and has made in his career 67.5% of them. However, with Giannis, if you look at his career, he has progressed every year in how many shots he's taking at the rim and the percentage he's shooting from there. Just last year, in his last full season, he shot 72% from the rim. In this season, in that small sample size, he's shooting 78% from the rim. For a comparison standpoint, these numbers for these two players put each of them in the top 10% of the league in shots at the rim and shooting percentage from there. In addition, their offensive ability defensively they rank very high on their ability to guard perimeter players to keep them away from the rim and force them into those bad shots so the interesting thing about each of these from a media narrative standpoint is that the media constantly talks about how these two players need to work on shooting threes they talk about how Giannis needs to work to improve his threes and Simmons needs to work to feel comfortable in shooting them But what we actually found in our discussion today is that they don't have to improve shooting at threes, but rather they just have to continue to be as good or continue to improve with what they're doing, driving to the paint and scoring at the rim. 
If they just continue to do that, they're going to be at the top of the league for the next five to 10 years. In addition to these guards or forwards who are very good at getting to the rim, GMs are also going to continue to value skilled big men. Why is that? Because they are positioned close to the rim, so them getting a shot from down there is easier. Now, I know the modern day is to move the big man out, and I understand that, but historically, we have the big men down by the basket. They are close to the rim, making it easier for them to get that high percentage shot that we're looking for. They also defensively are positioned down by the rim, making it harder for everyone else to get that shot close to the rim. So we will continue to see high value placed on guys like John Dre Ayton because of his ability to score low. So in the end, what have we learned from applying these ideas of game theory to the sport of basketball and the NBA? Well, first, we've learned it's not just as simple as asking where you should shoot from during the course of a game. It's more a question of what is the probability of you making that shot? How many points are you getting from that attempt? and then working backwards to determine if there's a better option out there. The second thing, specific to the NBA, we've learned that teams are not playing an optimal strategy right now. They're relying far too much on short mid-range shots and long mid-range shots. These shots go in at a lower rate than the other three shots we talked about. And as a result, you're earning less points every time you take that shot. Therefore, those are the worst shots to take. Just because the common media narrative has been that the long mid-range is the worst, It's actually not true. Our findings in this discussion shows us that the worst shot is in fact the short mid-range. In other words, you do not want to shoot from there. Finally, we've learned that the most valuable players in the NBA are those that can score at the rim the best and take a high percentage of their shots from there. As such, instead of focusing on finding the best 3 and D players in the draft or overpaying free agents who are good three-point shooters and good at defense, we should be looking to find players that are rim and D players. Players that are good at getting to the rim and scoring and play good defense. Though this idea goes against what the NBA has talked about over the last five years and might be scary for a coach or a GM to employ, uh, Digsit and Nailbuff point out that risky innovators are often the best and perhaps only chances for smaller or new companies to gain market shares. So instead of employing a strategy and trying to do what everyone else is doing by just shooting more and more and more threes, it might be best to try something risky, to go with what the numbers are saying and move to shoot more shots at the rim because that might be the best chance for a smaller market team or a team that can't get a great three-point shooter on their team might be their best approach to win the game or to win a championship because by going against the trend, we're actually going with what the numbers are saying. We might be doing something that's risky that no one else is doing, but in doing so, we might be able to be innovative and change and be the first person to do this and catch everyone by surprise, thus increasing the likelihood of us winning the game. So with that, I want to thank you for joining us today as we talked about game theory in the NBA. Hopefully you understand a little bit more about how we can set these mathematical parameters in place to look and examine what's happening in a sport and assess what we can do to increase our likelihood of winning the game. We've learned a little bit today about what that means in the NBA and what type of shots and defenses we need to look to employ. If you have any questions about that, or any other topics related to game theory or the NBA, please reach out to me and let me know. 
you can find me on Instagram at the sport professor. I would love to get your input and hear if you're interested in more conversation about the NBA or more conversation about how we can apply the game theory to different settings in sports to try to come up with innovative ways to approach different settings. Until then, thank you for joining this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.